Grab a seat, church. We, uh, <laughs> we are really good as Christians and as just people at making things more complicated than they need to be, aren't we? Man. If there's one thing I'm afraid of as our church ages is the complexity that often comes with time. The longer a church has been around, oftentimes the more complicated things get. And the more sacred cows we have, things that we have to keep because, you know, we did them once and we always have to do them. And, and uh, if there's one thing that, I, that I, uh, I really hope we can maintain, it is a laser-focused simplicity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that is what brings us together. We're very easily enamored as humans and as Christians by systems of religion. Uh, We're very enamored by um, processes or equations to level up our spirituality. You know, we get saved with this sort of pure thankfulness of the grace of God and what God has done to save us and then we sort of start to look around for how can I level up my spirituality. And there's plenty of books, right, on the bookshelves that are going to tell you how to do that, how to level up your spirituality, how to be a super Christian, right? And uh, we know we've all kind of wrestled with that through the years and here's the problem. We're, we're, not only are we enamored by, by systems and things like that, we're also very easily duped into thinking that our, our um, spiritual activity is actually real worship-driven productivity. Meaning, we, we think sometimes if I just do a lot of stuff for Jesus, if I'm just really busy and I'm really involved in this program and that program, then that's, that's what makes me spiritual or spiritually mature. And God sometimes has to kind of work on that a little bit. Uh, we're not going to go there because we don't have time and, and, and I want to, uh, to, to get to the text. But the, one of my favorite and most, I think, interesting passages in the New Testament is Mark chapter 11. And it's at the end of Mark's gospel where Jesus is about to go to the cross. It's, it's a matter of, of hours, days before he goes to the cross and he enters into Jerusalem. You know the story. It's the triumphal entry, it's called, right? And this big procession welcoming into town. And, and Mark's gospel uniquely records Jesus walking in with this big greeting and this kind of anticlimactic moment where he walks into the temple, sort of the epicenter of the, the religion of Judaism where, where God and, you know, is, is said to really um, meet with his people and where it's all going to go down, right, in Jerusalem according to the Old Testament prophets. And so everyone's anticipating, here, he's here, the Messiah is here, Jesus is coming to his city, he's coming to Jerusalem, it's all going to go down. And Jesus walks into the temple and everyone's expecting him to do something incredible. And he looks around and then he leaves. Have you ever read that in Mark's gospel? It's super interesting. Uh, he, 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 he's unimpressed with the temple. And now this wasn't the first time Jesus went into the temple. He was very acquainted with the temple. Remember when he was a kid, he actually, um, he, he separated from his parents for some time. His parents were kind of worried. Where did he go? He was in the temple. He was, he was um, very acquainted with the system of the temple. And, and in case you guys have forgotten, when, you, when I say temple, don't think some little building, okay? This, this temple, Herod's temple, which was a rebuild of Solomon's temple, it was massive. It was impressive. It was one of the wonders of the world. It drew Jews and people from all over the world to look at it was impressive, astounding feature. And Jesus, as we see in other places, he just wasn't very impressed with it. So he looks around and then he leaves. And then Mark records that the next day he gets up with his guys. He went to Bethany, just this little town where Mary, Martha, Lazarus lived. And, and they, they spend the night and that's the moment, I believe, where Martha or where Mary actually anoints Jesus for burial. And it's just kind of an incredible evening. And then the next morning they get up, um, him and the disciples, and they begin to walk over the hill into Jerusalem. And as they're walking in over the hill, there's a, a fig tree, pretty common in those days. And the fig tree specifically says in Mark 11, you can go read this on your own, the fig tree was not yet in season, so there's no figs, but it was full of leaves. And so Jesus goes up to the fig tree to get some food, because he needs a snack, a little morning snack. And the fig tree has no nourishment. You remember this story? So what does Jesus do? He curses the tree. It's like the most random thing ever in the Bible. Like, what in the world, Jesus? Like, that, that's not something he did all the time. 
He curses the tree, and then they go off into the temple, and it's in this moment actually where Jesus um, actually cleanses the temple, and he drives out the money changers, sort of signifying his displeasure with the system of Judaism, the system of religion, and what it had become. And then on, on the way out, the disciples are like, Rabbi, look at the tree, and it's dead. It's completely dead, shriveled from the roots up, gone. And you're reading that, and you're thinking, what in the world is up with that? Now, we, we know what Jesus is doing here. It's, it's, it's what has been called by theologians an, an enacted parable. Jesus is parabolizing something. He's illustrating something. And what he's illustrating is the deadness, the fruitlessness of the system of religion of the day, Judaism. He's illustrating the temple. Now, you could say, but, but it wasn't the season for the tree to bear figs. So why is Jesus cursing the tree? Now, if you, if you study it a little bit, you'll realize that even though the tree wasn't in season, the fact that it had leaves would have meant that tr- the tree would have had these little buds or these little nodules that you would have been able to walk up and grab and snack on. So the, the fact that the tree doesn't have these nodules, what does it mean? It means it's not going to bear fruit, ever. But here's the interesting thing about the tree. It's green. It's full of life. It's full of foliage. No fruit, lots of foliage, lots of an appearance of things. Now, Jesus chooses this for his metaphor for for the temple in in all the the, the trappings of the religious system of the temple. He's like, it looks like it's full of life. There's the priesthood, this giant system of men that that are are, their full-time job is offering these sacrifices and and there's all of these hundreds of people and thousands even that come into these pilgrimages and all this money that goes in and it's big and it's ornate and it's impressive and it really appears to have this spiritual life. But when you peel back the curtain, it's fruitless. And not only is it fruitless, it is never going to be fruitful. So Jesus curses tree to symbolize that there's no life in that tree. There's no life in it. Well, what's the point? Just just a few things here. First of all, it's very easy to make it appear like our life is full of spiritual fruit. And usually through lots of activities and lots of signing up for things and, and lots of going to things and lots of, of sort of external things. And, and the Jews have gotten really good at that. But what did Jesus say in John chapter 15? If you want to produce fruit, you have to what? Abide in me. So Jesus was, wasn't just saying, hey, I'm going to come and kind of be an addition to the system of religion in the day. He came in and said, no, I'm the whole new deal. You, you got to literally let go of this whole system and you got to meet me outside of that system and plug into me or else you're never going to produce fruit. Otherwise, what you're going to do is you're going to overcomplicate this whole thing and create a lot of leaves with really no spiritual substance. So some questions I want you to be wrestling through as we look at the text is, is your life full of fruit or is it full of foliage? Does your life have the appearance? And and as Christians, the longer we follow Jesus, the better we get at faking it. We get really good at it. We know what to say. We know how to pray. We know what to say when we walk through the door. How are you doing? So blessed. Yep. My wife just left me and my dog just died and I have cancer, but I'm I'm blessed. Oh, and, 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 and there's all this like, sin and brokenness in areas in our life that we're not letting the gospel touch and not letting Christ redeem, but, but you know, we, we're still showing up to things and nobody really knows about it and we just sort of turn up our productivity hoping that maybe if we do enough stuff, nobody will notice and maybe Jesus won't realize that we're broken and we don't actually have to lay our sin out on the table and let God's uh, prov- provisional grace cover us. We get really good at doing this. We like systems of religion because systems are controllable, see? Systems are controllable. It's an, it's an equation. A plus B equals C. If I do this and I do this, then I get that. If I just follow these rules, God's going to bless me. Everything will be good. I'll go to heaven. Happy life. I get the American dream and I get to go to heaven. Woo! Right? That's great. That, the problem is, is that's, that's an equation. That's, that's something you're synthesizing. The reality of following Jesus is that you sign over all rights, all authority, all control, all power, and you say, here's the whole deal. You do whatever you want. Now let me plug into you and you produce fruit through me, and it's not even mine. I don't get the credit for it. 
And when I'm broken, I'm going to admit it because when I'm broken, it actually reminds me that it's all grace. That's called feeding on grace. That means it's a grace-sustained life. This is what our text is all about this morning. Now, why this matters and why this has relevance to this last section of Hebrews is that these Jewish Christians, as we'll see, they're being infiltrated. The church is being infiltrated by people trying to come in and tell them that they've made it too simple, that they need to go back to the complexity of the religious system of the day. Now, let's just read the first three verses and I'll unpack a little bit here. Verse 7 of chapter 13, the author says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We'll come back to that. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We'll come back to that. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Note that. Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So here's the problem. Not only are the Hebrew Christians, those that this letter is being written to, not only are they drifting of their own passivity and their own volition away from Christ, not only are they not paying attention to their mooring lines, as we've learned throughout this book, but they're also being pushed they're being pushed by false teachers that are coming into the church and trying to overcomplicate this, uh, this simple faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And probably what they're trying to do is they're trying to get them to adhere to old covenant practices, specifically along the lines of dietary restrictions and, 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 and dietary laws. They're coming in and they're trying to push these Christians away from Christ being enough into the complexity of a religious system. And, and you might go, oh, that's silly. Why don't they just stick with Jesus? But what you need to remember is these guys grew up as Jewish individuals. They grew up going to the temple. They grew up going to the priesthood. They grew up offering sacrifices. They grew up um, celebrating Passover and celebrating Feast of Booths. And, and they grew up with this beautiful, complex, tenured, robust, impressive system called Judaism that God actually invented. It just got really wacky because people got a hold of it. And they're endeared to it. It's, it's precious to them. They love going into the synagogue. They love the whole thing. And so what their natural proclivity is is not to go further into grace. It's to go back to what they know. They're, they have an endearing relationship with the old covenant. And don't forget, guys, the temple, at the point that this was written, the temple was not yet destroyed. It's right there. So they're going, Jesus, why not? We got the whole, the temple's right there. I mean, the priesthood's there. Why not? Why can't we do both? Why can't we keep our, our Judaism and keep our, this, this system of religion and just add Jesus to it? And the whole book of Hebrews is saying, you can't have both. You got to let go of one. And you got to go deeper into the other, the other being Christ. Now, just... A side note, because I think sometimes we read things like this and we go, okay, well, I'm not tempted to go into Judaism and I don't really care there's no temple here. I'm not tempted to go off and, and offer a sacrifice. I'm not tempted to start thinking about not eating pork or whatever. Um, and, and you start to think, well, what relevance does this have to me? Well, I've been in church a while, okay? I was born in the church, not literally. Uh, I think I was born and then a few days later, I probably came to the church, right, mom? Um, but I've spent a lot of time in the church, as some of you. And here's one thing I know. Christians, I'm being generous by calling them Christians. I could call them wolves, but we'll just, we'll just be nice. We'll call them Christians. Christians love to come into the church and evangelize Christians. What do you, what do you mean? They love to come into the church and tell you that you're supposed to be doing something that you're not doing. They love to come and tell Christians that, hey, yeah, I know, it's cool that you follow Jesus, but actually there's a whole nother level that you're missing. Let me give you some examples, and I'll probably get in trouble for these, but they're true. Uh, someone starts out being really happy that they have God's word in their lap. Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. Then they watch some stupid YouTube video where some crazy guy says, if you're not reading the King James Bible, you're not reading the real Bible. And they go, oh, I thought I was spiritual, and now I'm actually not as spiritual. So they go and they buy their King James Bible, and they get the right one, the authorized translation, right? I'm not against the King James Bible, for the record. But then they go, I go, to, I go tell Christians that they should be reading the King James Bible. So they do. They go to the church, and usually small churches that don't have a lot of, 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 of leadership or people that can kind of stop that. They go and they infiltrate these churches or big churches where nobody notices them, right? And they start to evangelize Christians. Hey, you know, you should be reading the King James. 
What are you reading? NLT? Non-literal translation? What are you... You're reading NIV, the non-inspired version? ESV, extra special version? No, it's King James only, right? <laughs> or, or somebody else, you know, the, the, the gospel is no longer enough for them, so, so they come in and they say, oh no, it's not just enough that you're saved, there's these five points about how you're saved. There's these five points about how God elected you, or there's these five points about how God didn't elect you. Okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about Calvinism or Arminianism. Okay, I am talking about Calvinism. <laughs> And, I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not anti either of those. I just, I just don't like it when people say, actually, the gospel has to be fit into this five-point grid or it's not the gospel. Wait, what? We may not agree about whether God elects or whether God's, you know, uh, how, how, what part I had to play in that, but, but for crying out loud, why are you trying to convert me? Why are you trying to convert me? I'm already converted. Stop evangelizing to the evangelized. Here's another one. Um, Christian freedom is not enough. Now all of a sudden we have to eat a certain way. I'll never forget, I started working at this church like 12 years ago, not this church, another church 12 years ago, and I, I, I was trying to bless one of the other pastors, so I stopped by Sonic, I got a couple hot dogs, and, and, I, and I stopped by the church, and I was like, hey, Paul, you want to have a hot dog? Here you go, man, here's a pork, pork hot dog. And, the, and this guy was sitting there who was an elder in training at the church, and he's looking at me. I'm like, oh, we're eating the hot dog, you know? And then he decides that this would be a good time to tell me that, hey, you know, the Bible talks about not eating pork. And I thought, really? I'm like, actually, let's, let's look at it. Here, like, open up your New Testament. Let me, let's talk about this, you know? And so I, I corrected him, like a good, you know, 20-year-old should do. And, uh, and for some reason, he got really offended by that. I don't know, but he, he, he really was upset at me. He didn't like me at all, and it was this big thing. And, and so what I found was, like, this guy's trying to evangelize me that I shouldn't be eating pork. It's crazy. Weird, okay? Here, here's another one. You know, you're, you're just like in the church and you're, you're walking in the spirit and you, like, you understand what the fruit of the spirit is, love, joy, peace, patience. And then all of a sudden, come, someone comes into the church and they start telling you, actually, you know, you're not really spiritual because you haven't spoken in the secret language. Oh, what? I didn't even know there was one. And then they hit you on the forehead. And you, no, no, like, <laughs> stop, stop trying to tell me I gotta do this thing, right? Like, no, is there a prayer language? I think so, but, but for crying out loud, like, get out of here, right? Or, or someone comes in and, and, uh, and they say, oh, do you, uh, we've had this all, this, all this stuff has happened at this church, by the way. Um, someone comes in and says, do you guys evangelize? And we say, yeah. Well, yeah, like, well, what do you do for evangelism? Like, well, we tell people about Jesus. And like, well, that's not enough. You know, you gotta, you gotta stand on the street corner with a, with a sign in your hand and with a megaphone and you gotta shout at people. And if you don't do that, you're not really evangelizing. You're not really upper level, right? Okay, so that, that's happened at this church. Um, it, it's all happened. It all, I mean, it all happens because people love to, to try to find ways to level up. Man, the gospel was great, but now there's, there's got to be more, right? I mean, yeah, like those Christians at that church, like, yeah, they, they don't read the King James. <laughs> yeah, those Christians at that church, like, they don't hold to the, the soteriology that I hold to. Or eschatology, end times, like, yeah, that, that church, uh, they don't really, they don't talk about the end times enough, right? Okay, you know? What's my point? My point is that there's always going to be people that are going to come into the church and they're going to burden the church with stuff, and it's not all bad, but it's not all the gospel. And the point here is the same thing is happening in our text. People have come into this church of the Hebrews and they've begun to tell them, you should be eating this, you should be doing this, you should be saying this, you should be going to that. And the author of Hebrews, the apostle here, is waving his arms and he's going, get that garbage out of here. Hold on to Jesus. Remember the fig tree. It's dead. It might look like there's lots of produce, but if you're not clinging to Christ, you're not producing fruit. So what we're going to see in our text as we, as we unfold it here is we're going to see the solution on how to guard against the garbage, okay? There's a lot of garbage floating around, particularly in YouTube, particularly on social media, of Christians telling you you need to do stuff. And some of it's good, but a lot of it's not. How do we guard against the garbage? We're going to be given six resources and imperatives here to help us guard against false religious complexity and tune into Christ-centered purity, okay? And the goal of this is that we would be fruit-producing trees connected to Christ rather than foliage-filled trees connected to man-made systems of religious spirituality, okay? That's the goal. So the first one we're, we're going to look at is this. Remember your former leaders, their words, and their lives. And we see this in verse 7. Again, the author in verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate 
their life. Now, why is he saying this? He's saying this because these new leaders are coming into the church and they're trying to complicate and they're trying to convolute and they're trying to pull them away from Jesus. And so he's saying, hey, go back and think about the original people, the original church planners. And what I love that he says is he says, your, your former leaders or the leaders that spoke to you, what did they speak? The word of God. What did they give you? They gave you the gospel. Okay, when a friend of mine, Rick Boya, he says, you don't plant churches, you plant the gospel and a church grows around it. That's really true. We didn't move out here to Grants Pass. We didn't come out here to Grants Pass to plant a church. We came to plant the gospel. And what do you know when you plant the gospel? Okay, Christians get fed, Christians grow, and non-Christians get saved. Kingdom culture blooms and grows out of gospel. So what he's saying is he's saying, remember the simplicity of what the original church planters came in and, and told you. It was the word of God. They just gave you the word of God. They gave you the gospel, and it was, it was enough. Um, he's saying, did these planters come in telling you you had to eat all these things? Did the, did the original people come in and tell you you had to go and go through all these rituals and go through all this complexity? No, they didn't. So, so consider the way of their life. Consider the message that they came bearing. The gospel is, listen, the gospel is sufficient both for our salvation and our sanctification. You guys are going to hear me say this a million times if you go here, okay? You, you are saved by the gospel and you are sanctified by the gospel. What that means is the same good news that had the power, the dynamic power to break into your life and transform you and bring you into the kingdom of God is the same dynamic news that has the power to change everything about your life. And so don't think of the gospel as the front door. Think of it as the whole deal. It's not just entrance into Christianity. It's the whole of Christianity, okay? So he's saying, consider the message that these guys originally taught you. Now, just as a side note here, and this was, this was convicting for me, some of you guys have been in the church a while. Some of you guys, maybe 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago, brought someone to Christ. Can they consider your life and be encouraged that the message that you told them is actually true? I was thinking about that this morning. I was thinking about some of the people that first ministered the gospel to me. And some of them, yes. Some of them, no. It's, it's the weirdest thing sometimes when I'm like going through Dutch Bros and this like 18-year-old guy's like, hey, Sam. And I'm like, hey. And he's like, you were my counselor. I'm like, oh, cool. Like in high school, he's like, no, dude, like third grade. I was like, oh, that was a long time ago. I'm getting old. And I'm like, did I tip well? You know, um, the, the, there, there are people, especially some of you in here that have done ministry for decades. There are people that, that you have no clue how much of an impact you've had in their life. And they're watching your life. They're watching it on Facebook, watching it on social media, and they want to see this message that you once told me, are you really following through? I'm so thankful, just, just, to, just to honor, honor some people really quick. I'm, I'm thankful for people like Bob Bonner. Bob, thank you for loving Jesus so much. You've been telling people, a lot of people in this room, you, you've told them about Jesus 30 million years ago, right? <laughs> 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And you're still here following. Thank you for that. We need that in the church. We need faithful saints that walk it out over the long haul so that we can see that the gospel really is effectual. So he says, hey, consider the life of the leaders that first planted the church in you. Remember your, remember your former leaders. Secondly, he says, see the consistency and immutability of Christ. Look at verse eight. Jesus Christ, this is an important verse and you can memorize it. Jesus Christ is the same what? yesterday, today, and forever. That's really good news. Somebody say amen. amen. That's really good news. Now, why is he saying that? Because that's a really quotable verse, but what does it have to do with the context? Well, what he, the reason he's saying that is he's saying the same message that the church planters brought to you is the same message today, and it'll be the same message tomorrow, and it's as powerful yesterday as it was today as it is tomorrow, right? Isn't that cool? I mean, Christianity gets dated, and the carpet starts to look kind of funny, and the, and the paint needs to be updated, but the gospel doesn't need updated. It's the same message. It's the same message, and it's just as powerful now as it was then. So he's saying, don't let someone come in and try to tell you you need to update Christ. You want to update the carpet color? Fine. Stop trying to update the gospel. You're just ruining it, okay? Consider the simplicity. Now, and then he, and then he says a third thing, and this is important. The third thing he says is metabolize the gospel, not outward spirituality, 
Okay, metabolize the gospel, not outward spirituality. Look at verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by what? Grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. What is the diet of the Christian? Grace. It's grace. It's not non-pork products. Okay? It's, it's, it's not your, whatever random cultural hobby horse that, that you're watching right now on YouTube or politics or, or whatever. It's, cry, it's grace. It's the gospel, which is the good news of the grace that Jesus has shown by penetrating into this fallen, broken world and pulling you out of it and taking you home forever. It's the grace of God that is to be the diet of the Christian. Guys, at Philippi, our slogan is, we are a gospel-centered church. And actually, that's not our slogan. <laughs> wow. By the time we turn six, I'll actually know our, 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 uh, our thing. We are transforming lives with the gospel. That's it right there. Transforming lives with the gospel. Okay? Because we believe that our biblical conviction is that as the gospel is what we eat, then God's glory, God's work, God's character is going to come out. It's the diet of the Christian to eat the grace of God. When Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep, and then he said, do you love me? He said it again, feed my sheep. What was he talking about? He, he was talking about give them the gospel, give them the good news, get, get, feed them on grace. And it's no mistake that Peter, at the end of his last epistle in 2 Peter 3.18, he famously says what? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We don't grow out of grace, we grow deeper into grace. And this is why it's so um, detrimental to our spiritual maturity when we stop confessing sin and we stop being open about our brokenness because then we start to think, yeah, grace was what I needed pre-testimony. Grace was what I needed when I was a broken Gentile sinner. Now that I'm saved, I'm just like, I'm killing it. No, grace is what you need every day. Grace is what you grow deeper into. And the more you mature in Christ, the more you become aware of just how sinful you are. And the more aware you become of how much you need the grace and the goodness of God. So what does it mean to be strengthened by grace? It means what do you reach for calorically to put in the tank when you're hungry? And what do, you, what do I mean by that? Well, what, when you're feeling insecure, when you're feeling guilty, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling like you want something, what are you reaching for to satisfy the longings of your soul? Is it more works? Is it more doing is it, is, it, is, it, is it something you can synthesize and something you can create? Is it some kind of nostalgic feeling that you want to go back to? Or, 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 or is it the gospel? We need to be gospel-nourished people. We need to reach for the finished work of Jesus Christ and let that satisfy us. So he's saying be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Be careful of the ruts that you used to run in because we tend to slip right back into them. So for the audience of Hebrews, it was Judaism. It's probably not Judaism for you. What is the rut of a religious system that you used to walk in? Well, I'll tell you, for some of you, it's legalism, but for a lot of you guys that didn't grow up in the church, it's actually humanism. What I mean by that, humanism is a religion. It's a religion that worships self. It's a religion that makes man God, and it's really the religion of our, our day in our culture. It puts man at the center. It means, it says man is, is our highest good and man, it, I can determine for myself what truth is and what my origin is and what my purpose is and what my meaning is. It's all about me. And, and for a lot of us, that's the system we drift back into when we're feeling sad, when we're feeling anxious, when we're feeling insecure. How do we know if I'm drifting back into that religion? Well, you, you start focusing more on yourself and less on God. You start talking about yourself way too much. You start thinking about yourself way too much. You start saying things like, well, I just need to be about me for a while. Humanism. You need to be about Christ. That's where freedom is. That's where joy is. Be aware of this. This is the religion of our day. You know, I've got to put my oxygen mask on first. Okay, I get the analogy. But, but if what you mean by that is I need to make myself the center of my universe so I can fix my problems, it doesn't work like that. Get your eyes off yourself. Metabolize grace. Put your eyes on the one that actually can help you and actually save you. Look at verse 10. Now, this, this gets a little complex, so follow me here. I'm going to try my best to keep it simple. 
but he's going, to, um, he's going to deploy a particularly Jewish metaphor that, that needs a little bit of explaining in verse 10. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for a sin are burned outside the camp. So he's just bringing up something that he wants to use here in a moment to make a point. What he's bringing up is he's bringing up um, a, a picture from the, the system of, of, of Judaism, the system of the old covenant. And that was that God said, and, and this was God's idea, that God said that once a year, Jews, once a year, you're going to offer a sacrifice for the whole nation. It was called Day of Atonement. Once a year, okay? The Day of Atonement. And in the Day of Atonement, there was a scapegoat, and then there was the, uh, hopefully I'm not confusing that with Passover, but there was the scapegoat, and then there was the primary uh, lamb that was to be slain or sacrificed for the sins of the nation as a whole, okay? This was an atoning sacrifice. And according to Leviticus, the way they were to do that was they were to um, go ahead and, and you know, chop up the sacrifice in the temple, but then they were to take all the parts outside of the camp and they were to burn it in totality. And you say, well, why does that matter? Well, because a lot of times the sacrifices were actually able to be eaten by the priests. Okay, so they would have a barbecue afterwards and you would actually end up eating most of the priests. But, <laughs> wow. Let me go on record and say that we do not support cannibalism at this church. Okay. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Okay. The baby was up a lot. Uh, so they didn't eat the priests. They didn't eat the priests. But they, they did eat the sacrifices. The priests ate the sacrifices. Okay, let's, let's clarify that. So this particular, this man, I am just such a sinner. Okay. Um, the, they, they took all of the parts on the Day of Atonement, outside, and they would burn it in totality. So he's bringing this up as an analogy, and I want you to follow his logic. Verse 12, he says, now he's going to connect it to Jesus. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify or cleanse or set apart the people through his own blood. So what he's saying is he's saying that, that just like the Day of Atonement, it was all a picture foreshadowing the reality of it, which is that Jesus was going to be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Day of Atonement, the ultimate lamb, and he too was taken outside the gate. Now you're saying, what do you mean outside the gate? Well, where was Jesus crucified? Outside the gate. So he's equating here, he's saying that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the, the Passover, or not the, the sacrificial lamb on the day of atonement. He was taken outside the walls. Now, why was Jesus taken outside the walls? He was taken outside the walls because he was rejected by the Jews and he was crucified by the Romans. Okay? So there's symbolism in Jesus' crucifixion. It wasn't just that he was crucified, it was that he was rejected and hung on a tree naked and, 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 and representing. Um, the total rejection of Israel over their Messiah, okay? So he says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Now here's the application, follow me. Here's what he's getting at. Therefore, verse 13, therefore let us go to him, where? Outside the camp and bear the reproach, that is scorn or, or mocking, verbal mocking, that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Okay, this makes a lot of sense if you just take the word system, referring to the system of Judaism, and you replace the word camp with system. Therefore, let us go to Jesus outside the system of Judaism, okay, and bear the reproach that he endured. So what he's saying is actually very simple. He's saying, you don't need to go back to the temple, guys. You don't need to go make sacrifices. One sacrifice, the sacrifice, has been made once for all, completed. It is finished. Where do we belong? We belong outside of this system with Christ, sharing in his reproach, sharing in his scorn, taking part in the fellowship of Christ's cup of suffering. That's where we belong, and that's where we want to be with our Lord. He's saying there's no reason to go back. Meet Jesus outside the camp, okay? So number four, if you want to write it down, the, the fourth thing here is that we need to reject 
Your, reject your old religion and meet Christ outside the camp. Reject your old religion and meet Christ outside the camp. And, and by the way, um, isn't it interesting that the real primary persecution of Christians and of Christ didn't just come from the pagans, it actually came from the religious people? So when he says, meet Christ outside the camp and bear his scorn, he's tipping his hand to the persecution that these guys were facing. Who were they being persecuted with? By. A lot of the persecution in the first few decades of Christianity was by the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Christians. They saw them as an apostate, as a cult. They saw them as, as being um, completely in error, so they, they persecuted them. And the interesting thing is when you choose to meet Christ outside the camp, you are going to be persecuted by religious people. Okay? Most, most of the, the, probably most of the persecution that we're going to face is by actually people not telling you not to believe in Jesus. It's telling you that you're not believing in the right Jesus or that you need to believe in the Jesus that they're, I'm going to make a prediction. Don't call me a prophet. Don't stone me. I'm going to make a prediction. It would be really easy if the world just said, we're systematically rejecting Jesus and we hate Christians now and we could go, okay, we're on team Jesus. But here's what's really going to happen in the next few years. Team Jesus is going to be redefined. Team Jesus is going to be changed by our culture. And if you say, I don't agree with your version of Jesus, they're going to call you a cult. And they're going to hate you. And they're going to reject you. See, it wasn't, it wasn't that the Christians were like, oh, those guys fall. The, the Christians were thought of as being a cult. They were thought of as being completely in error, completely wrong, completely false. And so they were rejected by their own, their own families. And I think in our culture, probably the same thing's going to happen. We're going to hold on to the true, biblical, authentic, historical Jesus. And people are going to try to change him and change his words. And then we are going to be considered the ones that are false. And that's going to be hard. So the question is, are we willing to be rejected with Christ outside the camp? Are we willing to be counted among him and to bear his reproach if we are rejected? Okay? Now, verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So here's what's so interesting about the flow of this logic. He's saying it's not that you don't offer sacrifices anymore. It's that the kind of sacrifices that you offer are not atoning sacrifices. They don't make payment for sin. Why? Because sin has been paid for, paid in full. He's saying the kind of sacrifices that you make now are worship offerings, peace offerings. Offerings. You know, a lot of the sacrifice, most of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were actually to make atonement for sin. They were a way to say thank you to God and worship God and praise God. And so for New Testament Christians, we do sacrifice now, but what we sacrifice is not to earn anything from God. And what we sacrifice is not an animal on an altar. What we sacrifice is what? It is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's praise. And it's not neglecting to do good and share what we have. So he just gives two illustrations of what Christian sacrifice looks like. Christian sacrifice, two, two categories. The first is, is saying something or praising something or singing something verbally about the goodness of God. And secondly, doing something that reflects the goodness of God. So let's just, let's look at those really quick. First of all, if you're, if you're taking notes, number five is give God your work as an outflow and overflow of his work. Okay, that's number five if any of you guys are still following that. So, as Christians, we don't sacrifice to be in favor with God. We sacrifice our lives and our resources and our time, and we, we give praise because God has already made atonement for us. And the first way that he says we can do this is with our lips. You know, there's a reason that we sing on Sundays. Did you guys know that? It's not just because somebody decided we should do singing at church, and that's a thing, and it's a cultural thing. Um, there, there's a lot in the Bible about singing, and especially in the Old Testament. It was a very central piece and feature of the Christian culture. And the reason is that we corporately want to confess realities together with our lips. We want to give voice to these beautiful realities that we're thankful for. That's what praise is. And he's saying that the Christian, out of the abundance and overflow of his, th of his or her thankfulness, praises God with their lips, and they share everything they have. That's Christian culture. Okay, let's, let's move on because we've still got a, a little ways to go. Number six you want to write it down, and we'll end here. Embrace the care and counsel of godly leadership. Now, he's going to pivot in verse 17 and talk a little bit about church leadership, and I'm going to try to just blitz through this. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. 
as those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Here's why he's bringing this up. Um, he's concerned, the author here, the apostle, is concerned about this congregation and he want, he's not concerned about his own influence, he's not concerned about his own authority because he actually says nothing about his own authority. You notice that? What is he concerned for? He's concerned for the, the, the care of this particular congregation. So he says, will you guys please listen to your leaders? Listen to your leaders. Who are the leaders? Well, the leaders were the elders of this local assembly. Okay, the people within this body that this letter was written to that were, that were responsible for caring spiritually for this church. So he says, please listen to these guys because this author knows that the, the leaders of the church are trying to keep them grounded in the gospel and these other guys are coming in from the outside and trying to pull them away. Okay, so that's all he's trying to do here. Uh, and, and I want you to just to see really quick just five characteristics in what we just read, 17 through 19. Just five characteristics of, of godly church leadership. Okay, five characteristics of godly church leadership. This is important. There's some things we can learn here about church leadership. Some of you guys uh, might ask sometimes, like, how, how is the church to be led, and who is to lead the church, and how is the church led here at Philippi, and, and where do we get that, and where is that all in the Bible? Well, let me give you a few, few things here. First of all, if you want to write them down, the first thing is plurality. Can you guys say plurality? Okay, that's a big deal here at Philippi. Okay, plurality. Where do I get this? Well, verse 17 says, obey your leader, right? Oh. Yeah, there's an S on the end. Thank you, River. There's an S on the end. Okay, obey your, not leader, leaders. What does that tell us? Okay, and this is not the only place you get this in the scripture. It tells us that the church was designed and called to be led by a plurality of leaders, not by one person. Okay, if, if you want to um, have the, what's called the Moses model paradigm of ministry, you have to leave the New Testament and go hang out back in the book of Exodus. Well, I got news for you. If you think you're Moses, think again, okay? You're not Moses, and we're not in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament, and the New Testament precedent of church leadership is always a plurality. It's always a group. Um, it's always uh, multiple leaders, multiple men called elders, and then there's also deacons, which could be men and women that are responsible for a lot of the oversight of the, the, the needs and care of, of the, the goods and and the giving and all of that kind of stuff, but the, the church is overseen by a plurality of leaders. Guess what? There's only one place in the whole New Testament where a lead pastor, or the idea of lead pastor is used, called chief shepherd, Arca Poemen. Who is it talking about? Yeah. So I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to like nitpick other churches, but like we don't use the term lead pastor here. And the reason is because it, there's only one lead pastor and it's Christ. There's only one chief shepherd. So, so instead of having a chief shepherd, lead pastor, you have a plurality of, 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 of elders, overseers, uh, that, that govern in, in community, uh, govern in, in a group. And so you will hear us say this a lot, but, but Ryan and I are co-pastoring. So I'm not the lead pastor, and he's the associate pastor, or he's the lead pastor, and I'm the associate pastor. Uh, we did decide, though, since he is older than me, that he is the senior <laughs> pastor, which I think is pretty funny. He's only like six years older than me. I don't know, but uh, anyways, so, so we, we co-pastor. And as we continue to, to um, add more elders, that, that plurality will grow. And we each have the same amount of authority. We, 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 we don't, it's not one of us has all the, calls all the shots. So we believe that's how God designed his church government to be run. We believe that's the biblical paradigm. We believe that's how it operated in the early church. And we're, we're convinced of that. So plurality. Number two, functionality. Look at what they are to do. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your what? Souls. This is the job of the elders. This is the job of the overseers, the pastors of the church. It's not to micromanage everything you do in your life. It's not to be your governmental authority. It is to be watching out for the, the, the health and the trajectory of your spiritual life. And so he's just reminding these guys like, hey, don't, don't, don't neglect this resource that you have, that you have these guys that are helping you navigate and follow Christ faithfully. Okay, and that's, that's, that's our job. Ryan and I, that's our job is to, to help you guys navigate walking with Christ. And the way that we do that primarily is by feeding you the gospel. Okay, by feeding you the gospel. So there's, there's a functionality there. 
The word elder, by the way, it's from the Greek episkopos, which, episkopos, which just means to overlook. It means to, to look for danger, to look and see what's going on and to provide care and direction and clarity. That's the job of the church leadership. Number three, accountability. Accountability. It says, uh, keeping watch over their souls as those who will not give an account, or for, as those who will have to give an account. Who do we have to give an account to? To Christ. That's terrifying. That's sobering. So the reality is, we answer to Christ. And it's kind of, it's kind of funny what he's saying here. Is he's, saying, he's saying, church, please don't make that hard for them. They have to answer to God. So, so, so don't make them groan. He literally says, don't make them groan when they lead you. Now, none of you guys have ever made me groan. Uh, but I've done some groaning in, in my time in ministry. You know. uh, so, uh, no, in all seriousness, like, you, you guys are such a joy to lead and such a joy to, to be able to help and, and pray for and feed and guide. Um, but that is the function of elders, and there is accountability. Number four, dependency. Notice he says, uh, verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Okay, he's saying pray for us because leaders are fallible. They're human. Ryan and I are men. We are flawed men. Men are deeply in need of grace. We will make mistakes. We will make the wrong decisions in how we lead. And guys, we covet your prayers. I know some of you guys are so faithful to pray for us. Please pray for us because we have a target on our back and we have accountability to Christ and it's hard. It's hard to lead spiritually. So pray for us. There is a a dependency there. And then uh, lastly, or I guess, Locality. I want you to see this in verse 11. He says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So the person writing Hebrews wants to be with them. He wants to be in the midst of them. And that's where a shepherd's supposed to be, in the midst of the sheep. He wants to be with them. And that's, that's how we lead. We, we lead in the midst of the people. So there's just a few points there. You can uh, study those more on your own, but just a few thoughts. Now, let's end the book. He goes then to a benediction. In verse 20, um, and a benediction, by the way, just means a blessing or a prayer. So a lot of times, if you guys have been in a liturgical church or something where someone stands up and gives a benediction at the end, it's just a a blessing, kind of a send-off prayer. And so the author of Hebrews is going to close his sermon with a prayer. And here it is, verse 20. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? This is a sermon, by the way. Hebrews is a sermon. It was written down, so you should read it like a sermon. And every good sermon has a good closing prayer. This is the closing prayer. It's the benediction, the benedictus, the, pl- the blessing to send them on their way. And I wish I had a whole other hour because I could preach a whole sermon on this benediction, but I just want you to see that the, the entire thing is sourced in the gospel. It's, it's all sourced in the gospel. He's saying it's through Jesus, by the blood of the covenant. He is the great shepherd. It's all for his glory. It's really this benediction is the entirety of the book of Hebrews encapsulated down into one prayer. And then we get our final greeting, verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. So he, he refers to this sermon of Hebrews as an exhortation. That's an encouragement Okay, an exhortation. For I have written to you briefly, only took us a year, you know, to to study it. I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy. Send your greetings. Grace be with all of you. These last few lines, it'd be easy to just sort of skip over them and go, yeah, okay, there's just some, some, some uh, housekeeping items at the end of the letter, but I, I just want to draw your attention to one point here, and that is that this was a real letter written by real people to real people in a real time about a real Jesus and a real good news gospel, about real concerns and real issues that really happened and that are really important to you and I. Sometimes we can read these letters and they can just sort of feel so otherworldly and so, so meta and just so, oh yeah, whatever. But, but this was written to real people. 
He uses real names. And I don't know if this is the Timothy that we're used to in the book of Timothy, but he says, hey, Timothy, praise God, he's been released from jail. And now hopefully we're both gonna come visit you soon. And, and the people over in Italy, probably Rome, they, they send their greetings. This part of your church family, they send some, this, this, was, this was a real moment in time. And by the guidance and the protection of the Holy Spirit, we can sit with this in our lap and read the reality of what the Spirit of God spoke through the apostles to a real church in the first century. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Okay, this isn't make-believe. It's really truth for life. So, that's the end of the book of Hebrews. I want you guys to, to cherish this book. I hope that you do. And I hope that you always remember that the whole point is to get you to abide in Christ. The whole point of the book is to keep you from being a tree that appears to have all this foliage and all this green and all this complexity. Look how religious I am. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is to take your anchor, to take your mooring line, to take your focus and to put it in the hand of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you guys to continue to read this book. Continue to be nourished with this book. Continue to let the grace of Christ seen in the book of Hebrews feed your soul. And when you catch yourself when you catch yourself drifting from grace, open up the book of Hebrews and be reminded that Jesus is the ultimate temple, the ultimate high priest, that he is high and lifted up, that he is sovereign, that he is king of the universe, that he has made one sacrifice for all times and meet him outside the camp. Don't drift back into your old system of religion. Cling to Christ. It is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the gift of this book. God, we are so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful, God, that I don't have to, day after day, year after year, consider how to follow this long list of rules, hoping that maybe I don't screw one up. I don't have to go into some fallen system of religion where, where, where sinful men are taking advantage of people by exchanging money immorally and, and selling overpriced sacrifices and, and where a flawed uh, man who is not even being honest about his own reality gives me some sacrifice that I have to, 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 to slay so that I can hopefully find some kind of relief from my own guilt. But instead, Jesus, as the book of Hebrews reminds us, we can come straight to you, our high priest, our sovereign king. Lord Jesus, you are our new temple. You have torn the veil. Your spirit lives within us, all because of the work that you've done on the cross. So thank you, God, for all that you've done and all you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.